it was something always in me that needs to get the shot. So it was like, you know, whatever anxieties, issues, fear you have, like you just better suck it up because this is greater than you, you know, and we need to do this. I'm Kate Hawes, and for episode three of Magic Praxis, Clarity Haynes and I visited Nona Faustine in her studio at Smack Mellon, where she is currently an artist in residence. Nona Faustine is a New York-based photographer whose work draws on many genres, documentary photography, conceptual art, feminist art, and performance. Frequently set in historic sites, Faustine's photographs ask questions about what it means to be an American and how we honor and memorialize our past. These images invite us to confront realities such as the often invisible history of enslaved people in this country and the tragic loss of African-American lives to police violence. While speaking to these larger issues, Faustine is also speaking about herself, her experience, her body, her family, and her city. Her work reminds us of the power that art has to change us. Her solo show, My Country, is on view at the Baxter Street Camera Club through January 14th, 2017. We have been having so much fun looking at all of the articles that have been written about your work over the past few years since you graduated from the, the BARD ICP program. There have been countless articles written internationally about your work in just such a short time. So obviously you've really hit a cultural nerve with your work. Yeah, is, it, it, it appears so. I would have never thought it would have happened this way. It was quite incredible. People have told me like it's rare that that happens for artists. I feel like everything else that happens to me going onward, it's like icing on the cake really because, you know, I just never expected to accomplish and do the things that I've done so far. On your website, there was a beautiful photograph that you took at age four mm -hmm. of your sister being held by your mother, yeah. which was so gorgeous. And we were just marveling over sort of a four-year-old with a camera. I wow. know, I know. Yeah, how did I don't, that come to be? I don't even remember it, but I remember like always seeing that picture in the house and being drawn to it and loving it. And then one day, um, my mom told me that that was the first picture I had ever taken. My uncle... He had brought this camera over and he, he, it was a little Polaroid camera and he showed me how to take pictures with it. And so um, I took the picture of my, my mother and my sister and then he took one of me. So I have both pictures. Yeah, yeah. Then my dad also was uh, the family photographer and so he passed on that love as well. He used to take a lot of pictures of us. Um, you know, typical family moments, you know, at Christmas. We lived in Crown Heights, so we lived right across the street from um, this big park where the Children's Museum is now. Like, he would photograph us uh, there, and you know, and um, so, but my dad, he, you know, had lots of equipment and cameras, and I remember always going into his little equipment bag and, you know, looking at all the different flashes and, you know, shoe guns he had and stuff like that. So early on, photography and the power of the image was always present in my life and in our family. We had these beautiful albums 
And I used to just look at the images of my grandmother, my aunts and stuff like that, you know, it linked me to them, you know, long after they were gone, you know. There's something about the family experience of sitting down on the couch and leafing through these pages and things are falling out and mm -hmm. yellowing and, you and know, the stories on the back, you right. know, that, yeah. that was a very common practice yeah. is writing on the back yeah. of images, who that person are, where is, you are, where the date. Yeah. Um, Do you keep... Um, the format of an, a family album going? Because I know a lot of people have kind of lost that tradition, which makes me really sad. Yeah. I actually made a book of the images of my, my daughter's earliest life. So that's really why I started one of um, my series called Mitochondria. I made a book out of it. And I, I said there's an urgency to print these images because they may not be available to us in in the next 20, 30 years is they, you know, the digital life of image degrades and opening new softwares and stuff like that. The experts are saying to print these images or else we're going to be a generation that has the least amount of images. You know, everybody uploads to Facebook and Twitter and stuff and shares these images, but no one is printing them. And so now, you know, all these questions have arisen. What is practical and how do you go forward preserving the archive? That's that's it. Preser how right. do you preserve the archive? Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the Studio Museum acquire a work of yours? Yes. So that is a really yeah. wonderful, fabulous way to get your work Mm -hmm. seen and preserved yeah. right there. Yeah. That, right? That's, you know the museums are going to take good care. Yeah. Right. That was in the show Constellation, right? Yes. We saw that. That yeah. was really great. Yeah. yeah. Constellation was my first museum show. It was such an honor and privilege to have that happen at the Studio Museum at Harlem. I cannot stress or, or really put into words what that really meant to have my work shown there and to be in the same room, like with Adrian Piper, right? Like I was just a couple of pictures down from her, and yeah. I remember taking my friend, the artist and writer Jorge Alberto Perez, with me to the opening, and he made me like realize he was like, "Nona, you're in the same room with Adrian Piper." I was like, "I know," and just like you know, with Elizabeth Catlett and David Hammonds. Faith Ringel, people that, I mean, just never, ever, ever, ever thought in a million years that would happen. It was incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, and a lot of, like, sort of emerging newer artists, too. I mean, that was an amazing yeah. show. It was an amazing show. It was it. 18 of us who had never been shown wow. at the Studio Museum before. You know, I'm meeting Thelma Golden, who I admire so, so much, you know. So, yeah, that was incredible. We were thinking that the photograph um, from her body sprang their greatest wealth of you standing on a box, nude, in Wall Street with a cab kind of driving behind you, mm -hmm. which is the site of a former slave trading auction market. market. It's called the slave market. 
That image feels really iconic. It's probably one of the ones that's been written about the most or looked at the most. There's something very like just the way that cab is kind of moving. Yeah. And, and I've read a lot about what you've said about how you feel in that moment and mm -hmm. what it means to you. Yeah. Um, and I just can't imagine what kind of courage it takes to to do that. Yeah. I don't know what kind of courage it took to do that either. All I know is that morning how I felt like by that time I had done around three site. So it's always new to me. And so I got there that morning and I looked out in the middle of the street and it was like no place to hide. Like when you're at Supreme Court, you're on the steps, you know, Tweed Courthouse, Chamber Street, sort of insular, um, the water and wall, it's like, bam, right out in the open, you know. And I just went, oh my God, how am I going to pull this off? Like, I just was a ball of mess until my friend, um, the artist Davis Thompson Moss got there. And my sister was there, of course, but until he got there, I just did not think I was going to have the courage to do it. Because he was like my anchor, you know, he's a real spiritual guy. He's a Buddhist, you know, and, you know, just I felt supported in that moment. But then it was something always in me that needs to get the shot. So it was like, you know, whatever anxieties, issues, fear you have, like you just better suck it up because this is greater than you, you know, and we need to do this. So I just pulled it together and it was amazing. It was amazing. Once I composed the image and did some test shots and boom, got out there and committed to it. Like it challenged me as a person, like every fiber of my being, like, you know, to pull it together there. And I was just amazed that, you know, not a cop came around. Nobody bothered me. Nothing. It was like perfect for 30 minutes. It was like, perfect. <laughs> we were out there. Yeah, we were out there 30 minutes because we were trying different things. I had a cape and then no cape. And, you know, I was coming back and forth, checking the camera. Then there were points where I was like stuck in the middle of the traffic and, and you know, but yeah, that site was, was special too because of the historical significance of that site. I just can't believe that that was where they sold people. It was, it was a little house there. Everything looks different. You know, of course, the landscape has changed tremendously. That was actually the waterfront. Yeah. You know, before it was extended by landfill. And so it makes sense. You know, the ships will pull up right there on the slips unload their cargo, and boom, they would just start selling people or meet every morning at the dock, you know. Yeah. Usually in cities where there's uh, ports or docks, that is where people configure, the right. hub. you know, the hub right. of a seaport town or right. city. And so it makes perfect sense that that would be where they would meet or sell. But really in New York, they were selling slaves all over the place. You could go almost anywhere and just buy a slave. Wow. And clearly this is not a part of our history that people really want to face. So I think it's really interesting that you're making a public monument out of your own body in a way without an invitation, right. which is so bold. If you look at the country right now, there's only one uh, museum dedicated 
to slavery. And there's this former plantation out in Florida where this very wealthy man took upon himself to preserve the history. And so, but if you look on the other hand, there's uh, with the Holocaust and Jewish museums right. all over the world, all over the all over right. the country as it should be. Yeah. Um, but, you know, with the slave yeah. trade, it yeah. is not. And I think that that's a part of what the work is talking about is these sites where African-Americans or, or Americans have no place to mourn the past. Things that still are with us today affect us today on every segment of our society. And we need a place to mourn. If there were more places for us to mourn and to come to terms with that history, that's what the work is doing, at least why I do it. Um, Marking these sites and for a short few minutes documenting myself and you know, a lot of times I go to these sites and all I could do is like pray or meditate for the time that I'm there. So it's for my inner peace, but it's also to mark these sites for the public or for humanity or as Americans. People create physical monuments in, you know, in places to mark it and to right. make us stop, right. you know, and to have an experience with the past. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's what your work is doing in a photograph. When I saw my piece at the Studio Museum, I was able to observe people looking at the image. And I saw this couple, even though their backs were to me, I could feel that they were taking this time to acknowledge whatever pain that they had. They were African-American, that they had at that moment, their relationship to that. Wow. I mean, it's a gift that you can kind of give that to people. I'm only, I I feel like I was only doing what felt natural for me. It was something that was always there for me as a New Yorker, as a person of Southern heritage. I really am born in between two places. My parents are Southern, but I was born here in New York. The relationship Southerners have to slavery, all right, and that past history but also how oppression and racism really goes on in a northern city that supposedly doesn't have that link to the past, but actually does very, very deeply connect it to the slave trade in the north. So it's operating on so many different levels. That spiritual aspect that you're talking about, I think, is really interesting. And I work with nudity, too, in my work. And, you know, there's a lot of issues that come with that. But when I see the images of you standing there, I think of the ancient goddess figures and sort of the way that the body, the female body especially, is the most sacred thing, Mm -hmm. like sacred and divine. So there's a power to it. And I see that in your photographs. Is that something that you think about or like how do you feel about that like because nakedness could be a protest but it could also be like a sacred offering right definitely it's operating as a protest and in solidarity with enslaved women and the way they were put on display and you know sold and the way they were photographed as well the history of photography early on but yes it's also celebrating the divine the feminine divine. And it's celebrating a female figure that 
you don't ordinarily see in art in the museums. It's celebrating the body on a different level. And so I feel that that is definitely an important part of the work. And it's really important part of who I am. And particularly becoming a mother eight years ago really changed my life and impacted the way I see myself and I see where my place is in the universe, in the world, in the city, and in art, and in photography, um, and in the institution, like, you know, it's all these multi-like levels. It's just like, I just had an awakening. But also, I recently was talking to a curator, um, Lisa Banner. She gave me a list of questions, and I was writing down my answers, and I realized what an important part sculpture played in my life the figure in sculpture and going to Greece and spending a month and traveling throughout the country and really falling in love with sculpture and also going to Italy and also seeing um, Michelangelo's David in the academia and just how that might have really triggered these performances slash images. Right. Somebody wrote... um about how it's almost like the heroism of the nude, you know, <laughs> like in those kinds of images and your body as kind of a sculpture, which is really interesting, like standing in for the monuments. The right. You put right. yourself on literally a little wooden box, which right. could be perceived as a pedestal. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. The box had served as like, you, you know, that's literally how they would step up onto an auction block. You know, if you didn't know that history, yes, it could be just a pedestal elevating a body. Yeah. Right. And maybe it could be both at once. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah I love how your work has like, it has many readings and a complexity to those readings that there's no one. Exactly. You know, sort of. There's such complexity about all of this. And that's why I love conceptual language in art because Everything means something and everything can have multiple meanings and you can use that to your advantage. And it's such a powerful language. And that was the part of going to grad school that I enjoyed, like learning the power in all of that. I just am really grateful that I had the opportunity to do that and to take that and run with it. We'll return to our conversation with Nona Faustine in a moment. You're listening to Magic Praxis, a podcast in which artists talk to artists in their studios. To find out more about Nona Faustine's work, please visit our website, magicpraxis.com. All of the things that have happened in my life led me to create this work now. Of course, my family, the family album, going to Europe, looking at sculpture, looking at performers like Grace Jones, Diana Ross, Josephine Baker, Madonna, I mean, Tina Turner. You know, these are women who are defiant yeah. and fucking badass, yeah. you know, and who had an impact on me. But also Andy Warhol is a big influence on me. Basquiat, amazingly, is a huge influence. Basquiat in particular because of the energy he took to create all that work. I'm still trying to figure out how to harness that kind of power. It takes power to create 
Even rap is a huge influence on me. The bravado that it takes. The rapper is an incredible performer. They get up there and they're able to communicate to a massive amount of people just speaking. <laughs> right. But to convey this like they're a superhero. Right. Right? They elevate the performance. And so making a kind of work like this that is conceptual and operating on many different levels, performance, fine art, documentary, and you're getting up there and you're in the public arena, all of that comes into play, working very quickly, like, you know, Basquiat, but also Warhol, some of his work, um, he did a civil rights series and he's asking questions and he's looking at the image and the power of the image. All of that translates. So it's not any one person, but of course, looking to the canon of black women in art, of course, you have to look to who came before you. You have to pay homage to that. I met Carrie Mae Williams and Dina Lawson. I met her my first year in grad school when I went to the MoMA and she was in that show. I met Carrie Mae Williams about twice. Last summer, I was able to have um, a brief conversation with her at the uh, Black Portraiture Conference in, in Florence, Italy. I love what she yeah, yeah. has given to the art world. Um, and what she has done. I think Lorna Simpson also deserves an immense amount of credit and accolades. She deserves a show too at the Guggenheim and a solo show. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. they've come up at the same time. Right, right. They went to school together. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, at San Diego. So, um, but I don't like this competition. Mm-hmm you know, that women are forced to be part of, you know, there can only be one. Right, right. Which is totally BS, you know. You know who your your work has reminded me of when I was thinking about different people and I was surprised when I realized this, but over and over again, I thought of Anna Mendieta with her Silhouetta series. Right, she's she's another one, yeah. Like the, the, the image of her body, like, you know, on fire or burned into a hillside or mm-hmm. carved into the earth yeah. over and over, the repetition of yeah. it and the kind of sacred feeling of it. Yeah. And even the scale, like within the way your, your photographs are printed, it sears itself into your mind, you know? You know, Anna has really given a lot to people. There's people who really emulate her. And I'm drawn to that natural environment mm-hmm. that exists in her work. But because it's so potent and linked to her, I back off from it. Right. Just the tragedy around her yeah. her death and you just don't want to take away anything from her legacy. Not that you could, but right. it's solid. It's solid. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to create my own world, my yeah, own language, yeah, yeah. challenge myself to create yeah. new work outside of what has been made yeah. and push that yeah. forward. in your show, My Country, there's one photograph of an interior Mm -hmm. and you're lying down inside of a room 
and I think it's your mother, an older mm-hmm. woman sitting on one side. Is there an American flag yeah. draped on yeah. with some like African masks mm-hmm. also, artwork mm-hmm. in the, the room, and you're nude yeah. on top of... The flag. The flag, yeah. yeah. That one is called Say Her Name, and it was taken in my home. And I conceived of it in tribute to the women who have been killed by police brutality. Mm-hmm. Um, Sandra Bland, uh, Corinne Gaines, Rakia Boyd, so many African-American women who in the past five years lost their lives so tragically, and uh, how social media came up with this hashtag, say her name. You know, the past year, I'm a very avid social media person, and my community, I call it my community and friends, we just sit there and see woman after woman tragically losing their lives. And, you know, it just makes you think, you know, it it could be anyone that easily um, life is lost. And these women who have died, they don't get the kind of exposure in the media that, that the men have gotten. It really affected me on a deep, deep level. And so that was my way of paying homage as an American. Right. You think about the way memorials are made, monuments are made. You know, you look at Washington, a whole part of that town is monuments to men. I didn't see any images of women. It's an erasure, you know, when we don't somehow, some way acknowledge this loss of life and what it means to us and what has taken place. I really feel that that needs to be acknowledged. That, that's my way of acknowledging it yeah. and the effect it has had yeah. on me as a human being. Yeah. And I think many other people yeah. feel that well, That way. makes perfect sense because it's almost like a coffin. Like you're lying. Yeah. Like- I remember reading about before funeral homes that funerals took place in the home, and particularly in the South. The bodies were prepared and then brought to the home, and they were there in the living room of the parlor until burial. And so people lived with their dead like that. And so Mm. that's sort of taking on that kind of thing and putting the body in the home. Also, I thought about, like, that's the last time they have the chance to be with their loved one and how they had that moment. So your mom being there, yeah... I think that death has been taken out of the home in our culture, you know, when someone dies in the hospital, which is most typical, you know, they whisk it away yeah. and then they cremate it right. and it's like, and you never boom, see it boom, again, boom. you know, it's so antiseptic and it's like, it takes away our intimacy with, you know, the experience of mourning and right. what that is. And we are a culture you know, that that doesn't um, really know how to mourn. And we're devastated by mm-hmm. death. You know, in the Jewish culture, you sit shiva. Right. And my sister's best friend died, and Jennifer was Jewish. And I remember going to her house and sitting shiva with her mother. And, you know, we had went to private school in Mill Basin, and it was a predominantly Jewish, uh, secular Jewish school. And, you know, that world was familiar to me. But I had never really sat shiva until Jennifer died. Within my own culture, there's a time of mourning in African um, culture. But 
African-Americans are really still so removed from those traditions. Now we're learning more about it. But I would like to be able to incorporate something like that into my own family, you know, when the time comes. Because I just think it's so important for us to be able to have those times to really mourn, just do nothing, just sit there, cover the mirrors, uh, people bring you food, people take care of you, and just sit for those, you know, six or nine days with uh, the memories of that loved one, just mourn that loved one. So I think as a culture, it's something lost when we don't acknowledge and memorialize those people. You know, for African-American women, it has literally been so devastating, so devastating for us the last two years as we've seen mothers and daughters just taken out of this world for little nothing. I mean, what happened to Sandra Bland Mm -hmm. should not have happened. And, you know, as American citizens and particularly um, the great, contributions and the price that and the struggle that African-American women have made in this country since its conception to then end up like that Mm -hmm. and just how little regard even within our own community these women are acknowledged I just felt deeply about it yeah I heard her mother on a podcast recently talking. She is just, I mean, the mothers of the movement, they're speaking out and making sure that their daughters are not forgotten, you know? Exactly. Yeah. It's important. idea of my country in America, we were talking about, you know, how your work relates to uh, documentary photographers like Gordon Parks or Robert Frank, whose subject is America and how so many artists have grappled with what is America. I feel like and that's what it means kind of, to be an American. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it feels like that's a lot of what your work is about. Definitely. In a way, it's a critique. In a way, it's a celebration. Mm-hmm. Probably mm-hmm. more critique than celebration, but it's both. both. It's both. Yeah. And... Um, the idea of patriotism as a troubled mm-hmm. concept and yes. how that's kind of always... Especially right now. Yes. And yeah. when I saw your show, it was so emotional because of my position to my country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a troubled relationship right mm-hmm. now. Yeah, you know, my country encompasses an evolution of thought of who I was as um American in high school, what I thought my country meant to me and I to it. And I've often, you know, said that African-Americans are some of the most patriotic people. You know, we fought in every single war this country has ever had, even as enslaved people. But I feel now definitely there's a there's a critique as the themes really of oppression and hatred and racism and racism against immigrants and all these other factors come up again we're questioning the role 
of where we belong as Americans and who does the country belong to and who gets that credit and who should leave and who should stay and who is paid more dearly, who is not, who's contributed, who's who's taking resources from whom and who does the land belong to even. You see that in Standing Rock. It's unbelievable that these people who were the original descendants of the land are not allowed to be on their land and to say what is allowed to be built on their land. Uh, We're at an incredible time as Americans, but also as a black American. And my relationship, you know, seeing the first black president, him leaving office, how horribly he was treated, in my opinion, how, you know, all the things that he really wanted to do to transform the country and make it better was thwarted at every corner and turn. But yet the pride in Michelle Obama and what she had brought to being first lady and the pride that we we saw, you know, in her as she raised her children, you know, it's just been an incredible time in many ways to be a woman in America, um, one of African heritage. We're soaring, we're doing incredible things, but then there's this incredible sadness and you just wish that, I feel like we're right at the cusp of advancing into something incredible, but there's forces holding all of us back, like all of us. And I feel the question of, immigrants and the contributions they made. We've been an immigrant country since day one. How is this like an issue? I mean, we have a statue in the harbor dedicated to immigrants and freedom. And yet we are choosing to turn our back on that. That's unbelievable to me. And blaming people who've come here and contributed and built their lives and helped build America. It's all helping to build America. It's terribly unfair. It's a disservice. And I think it harms the country in the end. So that I think all those things are running through my country at this moment. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> when you said that um, the thing about Standing Rock and people not being able to decide what happens to their land, it made me think about women, too, and not being able to decide what happens to our bodies, you know? Like, what is going on here? And then with Hillary having been the first uh, potential uh, woman president and the way she was treated. I'll just say this real quick. I think that there is a war going on for um, control of women's reproductive rights in our bodies. Simple as that. And... I feel like there are people who want to use that. Why is so much invested in that? You have to ask yourself, what is the agenda? You know, it's, it's a real tragedy what happened, I feel, uh, with this election and with Hillary. And she really was put out as the example, just, the, just how this country really feels about women. So we have a long ways to go as far as, you know, another female candidate. And I question if she's unqualified or she wasn't good enough, 
who is? Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, really? Exactly. Right. And for, to be frank, to be a woman in politics, it, it, people don't understand what it takes to get to the top. Right. That made me think of a few things. Um, being a woman artist, and, and in your case, being a woman artist of color, you're making yourself so vulnerable, literally, in your photographs. And you are a public figure, like a, like yeah. a female politician yeah. would be. And you have to deal with people's opinions, right. people's judgments, people's... And it's yeah. so much of it is perception. Right. So much of it is hype. Right. So it's like value is determined by that. And there's so much sexism and racism. Yeah. I think that there's a... Probably in most fields, it's like that. Yeah. But I think with art, maybe even more so exactly, than Exactly, exactly. You know? I mean, that's why I understand. Nothing is black and white here. And I understand, or beginning to understand, and getting a real good education and the compromises and the challenges of being a woman in this field. Um, and being out there, like you said, in the public and facing criticism for the choices that I make and the choices I don't make. Um, you know, early on when the work first was introduced, I got flack from people within my own community. Why did I have to be naked? Am I playing uh, this ghettoization uh, of, of slavery? Am I using my work or my history in such a way. You know, this was from my own people. Um, was I defiling myself by putting myself on the plate? Was I giving into the, the male gaze and the spectacle? You know, there's going to be people second guess you and your motives and what the work is saying. And But I've always believed that I had to do what I felt was my honest and true way of expressing the intergenerational trauma I felt and wanting to talk about that. And if I felt that, maybe others felt that. It wasn't the best way. It was my way. It's not your way. I'm not speaking for anyone else, but I'm speaking for myself. And that's how I felt. And I feel that artists should be true to themselves. And I feel very at peace that I have done that and that I feel that I've honored at least the women in my family from the heart the way that I wanted to and I think they're proud of that I, I hope that they're proud of that this episode of Magic Praxis was mixed by John Bender who also does our music sign up for future episodes on iTunes or at magicpraxis.com thanks for listening and see you next time 